There is some dispute among, for instance, communists as to how many countries there are in the world. Uh, China may not agree with the numbers we're going to throw out because they have a different view on Taiwan, for example. But there are 195 countries on planet Earth. There are 43 monarchs, 43 kings or queens that are sitting on their thrones. Some of them have multiple jurisdictions under their rulership. We know that King Charles has multiple nations that would declare him to be their king. There are about 200 presidents and prime ministers. That's because many nations have both a president and a prime minister. So you add them all up, you have upwards of 250 kings, queens, presidents, and prime ministers providing over, presiding over the, the world's uh, nations. And they come from various ethnicities. Some are men, some are women. They are adherents of various religions and ideologies. There's a lot of diversity. Some of them are governing parliamentary democracies. Some of them are governing republics. Some of them are dictators. But here's the thing. Every single king, queen, prime minister, and president that is currently sitting on a throne or in a legislative assembly somewhere on planet Earth ultimately is accountable to Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Sadly, most do not acknowledge it and will not admit it. But here's what the book of Revelation tells us at the commencement of this apocalyptic vision. The apostle John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ has laid claim to the throne, to the parliament buildings, to the castles, to the governing institutions on every square inch, or in Canada, every square centimeter of the globe. He is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. And we want to declare that loud and clear this Easter season. I've entitled this series, King of Kings. And that's what I want to focus on. I just want us to focus on the Lordship of Jesus Christ for the next week and a half or so. And I'll divide up this teaching uh, series into three sessions. The series is going to chronicle the, the kingship of Christ. We're going to start today by looking at his claims to kingship portrayed on Palm Sunday. And then we're going to fast forward on Good Friday and look at the attempts that his opponents levied against him to usurp his rulership by crucifying him on a Roman cross. And then third, we'll re-examine his victory over the grave on, on Easter Sunday. And in all of this, we want to declare that King Jesus is the ruler of all the kings on earth. So that's our big idea. That's the nail we're going to pound deep into the wood today, Friday, and next Sunday. That Jesus Christ is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Let's go to John chapter 12. We're going to study verses 12 through 26. If you have a Bible, please find your way there. It's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. And as you're flipping, I'll just set the context here a little bit. 
So if you go to the first verse of chapter 12, it says six days before the Passover. So the Passover would normally be celebrated on Sabbath, which would be Saturday. And if you backtrack six days, you'd think, well, then shouldn't Palm Sunday be actually Palm Monday? But the reason why it's a Sunday, we know it's what we now call a Sunday, is because the Sabbath would always begin, and the Passover along with it, would begin at sundown on the Friday and go till sundown on the Saturday. Okay, so it kind of overlaps what we call Friday night and the majority of uh, Saturday. So this is one week, this is one Sunday before Easter Sunday, or five days before Friday, or six days before the Sabbath, however you want to count it, where we have what's called the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So that's the Sabbath, or that's the Passover. In in, um, the 12th verse, it says, the next day. So Saturday to Saturday is what I should have what I should have said. So the next day, which would be Sunday, is the day that we're we're going to be exploring here in the John 12, 12 to 26 text. All right. So here's the the first thing that we learned from John chapter 12, verse 12 and following, that Jesus lays claim to Israel's throne. We're going to see that in his actions. So hear me clearly. We're going to see that in his actions. And we're going to see it through the words of people that were attending that event. So the Bible says the next day, this is John 12, 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which it's one of those words that doesn't translate well into English. It's hard to find an actual equivalent. So we've sort of anglicized it and added it to our English vocabulary. But roughly it means I adore or I praise you. It's part of the liturgy of Christ's people as we acknowledge, pay homage to, elevate, lift up, whatever language you want to use, the supremacy of Christ. So they're shouting out these words of praise and adoration. The text goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. By the way, that, if you want to get yourself into trouble in Roman Palestine, (laughs) shout out on the streets that someone's claiming to be the king of the nation. This is a, a risky statement for them to make. And Jesus doesn't silence them. And Jesus doesn't correct them. He allows the praise to stand. So then he does um, an interesting thing. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Why would you bother doing that? We see him walking everywhere. So why does he need a donkey at this point? Well, it's to fulfill what was written. It says, just as it is written, fear not, O daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So he quotes from the the prophecies of old. And he addresses Zion. So you may hear the word Zion used at times in in preaching or in teaching. It's like, what, what is it? Is it Zion or is it Jerusalem? So we don't really know the precise origins of the word Zion. It may have been a 
a word applied to pre-Israeli Jerusalem by the Canaanites and adopted into the vocabulary of the Hebrews. But in in the biblical context, it, it took on the meaning of holiness. So Zion roughly means city of holiness and Jerusalem means city of peace. You can hear the word shalom in Jerusalem. So city of peace, Zion meaning city of holiness, and Zion or Jerusalem as the political civil capital of Israel as well as the religious capital of Israel does indeed offer that in terms of the work of Christ, it offers us access to the Holy One and it offers us access to peace. So Jesus rides into the city in the way that a conquering king would return from battle or a conquering general would return from battle. So in ancient times, well before Jesus Christ was incarnated, when a king would go off to war or a general was sent out to fight against the enemy and they were victorious over their foes, they would often have this kind of a celebration that would take place after. They would come back, the people would come out, they'd take off their outer garments, sort of the modern equivalent of your suit jackets, you'd you'd lay them out in the streets, you'd take palm branches down from the trees, you'd lay them out. You'd often also put a robe and maybe even a laurel wreath on the general or the king, and he would ride in on a majestic horse, or in this case, a humble donkey, and the people would be paying him homage. So this was more than a civil event. This was also a religious event. This was paying homage to, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, this is roughly the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. It's not uncommon at coronations or grand festivals, when someone is sworn in as a president for there to be a a red carpet that is rolled out. Although some would suggest that the rolling out of the red carpet is even older than uh, the triumphal entries. There's some evidence in ancient Greek mythology that red carpets might have been rolled out to recognize certain deities. But regardless, the point is, is that this this event is both civil slash political I'm bundling those terms up together. And religious in nature. This is really important for us to understand. In fact, really, it's a a pretty modern notion that politics and religion are two separate things. That's That's a very modern Western notion. Ancient peoples typically blended them together. They They recognized the religious nature of political civil life. And they recognized the political religious implications of religious life. They were more or less blended together. So it would be difficult for them to separate the two. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem, declaring his kingship, this was both a political statement slash religious statement. Through his ancestral line, one could say that he was a legitimate king of Jerusalem, but as the eternal son of God, he is also the the divine king. Now, remember I mentioned that conquering kings or generals would often receive a laurel wreath and a robe. What's interesting about the the sacrificial uh, death of Christ, his crucifixion, 
is that those very symbols, in addition to a, a, a sign that was nailed to the cross above him, declaring that he was the king of the Jews, were made into symbols of mockery. So instead of a laurel wreath, he had a crown of thorns put on his head. His garment was taken and it was bartered off. And he was mocked by being crucified naked. So that they were mocking him, but at the same time, in a strange way, there's an affirmation there that the one who wore the crown of thorns is in fact the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who had the, the sign on the cross is in fact what the sign says. He is the king of the Jews. So the world sought to mock him and not just because he was making a, some sort of a political claim, but he was, he was making a religious claim. He was claiming authority over them. This is why the civil leaders only reacted after the religious leaders reacted to Christ's ministry and claims. Jesus had far more trouble with the Pharisees than he, did have with, than he had with the Romans, the quote-unquote civil leaders of the day. Now, if you look at the text, the declaration of Christ's kingship could not be more emphatic. The exact language of the text is, behold, your king is coming. You don't need a PhD and biblical interpretation to understand what's being said there. It's a clear statement that Jesus Christ is the king who is on his way to lay claim to the throne of Israel. If you study the gospels, you'll recall that there's a couple of interesting situations where somebody basically uses language that's reserved for God and applies it to Christ. They, they in other words, let the cat out of the bag and they declare the deity of Christ. And the Pharisees freak out and they accuse him of blasphemy and they attempt to stone him and he always slips away in the crowd. You, you can recall those events in the gospels. Jesus never says, oh, uh, I know they, th they think I'm saying I'm God, but I just want to clarify for everybody I'm not. He lets the accusation stand, right? He never, he never corrects it. He's, he's never the one that says it. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, I'm God. But he performs his ministry and work in keeping with the prophecies of old. He acts as God. He heals as God. He speaks as God. He dies as God. He's resurrected as God. And it's those around him that are affirming it with their, with their mouths. But he doesn't, he doesn't say it, but he allows the accusation to stand because it's true. Now, the same sort of thing is happening here as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and they're shouting out, your king is coming. He doesn't say, hey guys, sir, I, I was just out for a Sunday ride here. You know, I, I, I like, I'm always walking. You know, the, the donkey was available. I just decided to go for a little, a little stroll with my, my donkey into Jerusalem. He doesn't correct them. He allows their declarations to stand. Why? Because that is what he's doing. His, it's their words married to his actions that make it clear that he is declaring himself to be the triumphant Davidic king. Now, the full implications of his kingship are not yet apparent. They will become more and more apparent as we journey toward the tomb and then continue to read through the New Testament and have, read the, the apostles' teachings, which help us to understand what does it actually mean to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. You could attend any church anywhere 
in the world today. It could be a Catholic church. It could be an Eastern Orthodox church. It could be any variety of Protestant church. It could also be many of the Christian cults. And you, you, you could ask the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? And they would all, without exception, say, absolutely. Every, every Christian is comfortable saying, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian of any stripe, fake Christians, real Christians, all of them would say, yeah, Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. So it's, it's a universal Christian doctrine. But here's the thing. How many of us have actually thought through the implications of it? We, we can say it. We can affirm it in our creeds and our doctrinal statements. But have you thought even today about the implications of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over your life? Every cell of your body belongs to him. Every dollar in your bank account belongs to him. Every breath you take, every step you make, sounds like the start of a song, <laughs> belongs to him. He has absolute, in the most absolute sense of the word absolute, kingship over all of life. But if you want to get yourself into trouble, walk into a faculty meeting and declare the lordship of Christ over every faculty in your university and see what happens. At your next family gathering where your Christian family and your non-Christian family get together, you know, in your pre-meal prayer, declare the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over every person in the room and see how the conversations go after that. There's something deeply offensive to the unregenerate man about this claim. And Jesus is going to get himself into some hot water over it. But he is the absolute King of kings and Lord of lords. The Christian church of all people should know that. But I have a suspicion, and I've seen evidence of this over the past three years, that we all say he's king, but few of us have thought through the implications of that. Few of us have thought through the implications. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to have absolute lordship over his church? Absolute lordship over every prime minister, premier, president, MP, MPP, the whole group. We are without excuse. We have the gospel, brothers and sisters. We, we know he's king of kings and Lord of lords, and we have to figure out a way to live that out in space and time. But his kingship is not just limited to some ancient capital halfway around the world. Jesus Christ also lays claim to the world's throne. Again, he doesn't say it. Of all people, his opponents declare this to be true. Check it out, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Well, we, we know that. They, they were declaring things they didn't fully understand yet. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, which is the case Time and time again in the word of God, you read something or some event happens and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I kind of get it, but I kind of don't. And then as you're progressing through God's redemptive timeline and you're reading more and more and learning more and more about him, it casts greater light back on the things you previously learned. And it all, over time, the whole picture starts to come into view. You know, the windshield gets cleared off and now you can see the whole panorama of God's redemptive design through history. 
So this is what's happening here. They didn't fully understand it at the moment, but eventually they did. And then verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So prior to this, they referenced back to Jesus' miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, which led to a lot of people following him and bearing witness and testifying about his powers. Goes on to say the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So they, they heard that Jesus had the power over death and had proven it in space and time. So the Pharisees, meaning his opponents of the religious class, said to one another, listen to this, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they're talking to each other. You just lost. I just lost. We just lost. We're not gaining any ground here. This guy's out in front of us. He's outwitting us. He's outmaneuvering us. He's outflanking us at every turn. And the, the whole world's going after him. Now, you understand he's speaking in hyperbolic language. It wasn't like every single individual was surrendering themselves to Christ. But his ministry was expanding so rapidly and so fast, and people of all backgrounds were leaning in his direction that this concerned them, and they weren't happy about it. But here within their objection, truth. And the truth is and was that the whole world was going after Christ. In the Great Commission, he commissioned us to bear witness, to go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and looky, looky, looky at this room. It happened. People of all tribes, tongues, backgrounds, and nations are declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. You'd be hard-pressed to go into any country on planet earth or any tribal group on planet earth and not find at least one Christian today because the gospel has gone global. Its cosmic implications have been, have borne fruit. People are worshiping him around the globe and that will continue to be the case in the eschatological kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing for us to consider. Now the disciples would not initially acknowledge or recognize, I should say, all the implications of this act, but when they did, they would testify to it. And brothers and sisters, that's our mandate as well. There it is in verse 17, to bear witness. I know in our testimonies, we like to tell our story, but your story is just his story if it's, a, if it's actually a testimony. Nobody really cares about your former addictions and breakups and multiple marriages and your life before the Lord Jesus Christ, unless it includes a radical account of God transforming the sinner to a saint. Jesus is always the hero of the narrative and he must be the hero of your narrative as well. So when we bear witness to him, it's not about, hey, did you hear what I did or I accomplished or how awesome of a man or woman I am. It's always pointing people to Christ, less of me, more of him. The Pharisees, of course, are driven by jealousy and resentfulness. But what I think is super awesome and the irony of the text is that it is his opponents, Christ's opponents that are the first, that are the first to acknowledge the implications of the triumphal entry of Christ, that the whole world has gone after him. It's a wonderful thing. 
just like when they put the crown of thorns on. I know you're trying to mock them, but you've just crowned them. Just like when they nailed the, the sign to the cross. I know you're trying to mock him, but it's actually true. It's true. You're trying to mock him and make fun of him, but it's, it's true. He is, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, if you, if you want to mull over um, their response a little bit, we could ask the question, like, why, why were the Pharisees so opposed to Jesus? Why are the institutions of higher learning in our country and people with multiple degrees and a lot of time in the books, why, are, why is it that the vast majority of them still mock Christ? Why is it that the vast majority of those 243-ish kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents still will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll talk about Mother Earth, the great spirits, the ability of mankind to bring peace on earth. They'll pay homage to earth gods, fake gods, false gods, themselves, their institutions, their history, their ethnicity, but why is it that carnal man is so opposed to paying homage to Christ? Because he is a threat to them. Fundamentally, Jesus Christ is a threat to the self-governed man. To those that are autonomous, self-laud. He's a threat to them. He threatens them because he is king of kings and lord of lords and he's calling them out and he calls us out. You are a usurper. That's all you are. You are a usurper. You're not king of kings and lord of lords. You are a usurper. Human beings by nature are usurpers. We want to usurp authority. We're born. Our mothers nurse us. Our fathers provide for us. They care for us. They pour their money into us, their time into us, their attention into us. And what do we do in return? We want to usurp our parents' authority. Every single one among us was born a punk, a rebellious punk. Some of you may have expressed it a little more outwardly than others, but we are all rebellious punks. We test our parents. We test the limits. I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to eat my broccoli. I don't want to clean my room. I don't want to apologize to my sibling. And we might snicker, but then those signs of autonomy just become a little more heinous, a little more nasty the older we get. I don't want to submit to my husband. I don't want to submit to my boss. I don't want to submit to my pastors. I just want to absorb and glean from these people. And then I want to live my life my way. My way or the highway is the motto that all of us live our lives with apart from Christ. And we're constantly trying to jockey for position and authority and power. And Christ comes in. He says, you're not in charge. You are a usurper. And so when Christ's message is fully understood, it's like, wow, he's, he's a threat to our authority. He's a threat to our pride. He's a threat to our 
sense of ownership. He's a threat to our sense of the self-made man. He's a threat to our future. He's a threat to our idolatrous identities. And it's because he's God and he has a right to be a threat. He's not threatened by you. He could wipe you out like that. God's not chewing on his fingernails wondering if he's going to lose. You are a usurper. I am a usurper. The Pharisees were usurpers. And they they didn't want to acknowledge his his lordship. But at the same time, strangely, they're the first to declare that the world's going after him. And at the end of the day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's absolutely true. Now here's where it gets super personal. Not only does he lay claim to the throne of Israel and the world, but he also lays claim to you and to me. That's where it gets really personal. So we have the scene of the triumphal entry of Christ. Some Greeks hear about it. Interesting. Non-Jews, people from the world, i.e. what the Pharisees mocked was starting to happen. Gentiles were starting to pay attention to Christ. Gentiles were coming to Jerusalem. Gentiles wanted to have a conversation with Jesus. Greeks of all things, like, wow, this is new. So check it out. They come to Christ. It says in verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. Remember the seven men that were appointed to govern the church and one of them's name was Philip? Okay, this isn't him. This is the apostle Philip. Different guy, same name, also a Greek name. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Greeks want to have a conversation with Jesus. People outside of the covenant. Philip went and told Andrew, also a Greek name. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. So this is Jesus' response to the world's questions about whether or not they could meet Jesus, to have a conversation with Jesus. So this is a gospel now for the nations, we could say. Okay, this is not a gospel limited to the Jews. This is a gospel for the nations. The Greeks are listening. His Hellenized Jewish disciples are carrying the message. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. So he's referencing his crucifixion. A little bit of cloaked language there, but we know what it, it means. Then a sermon illustration. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, this is the application of the illustration. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So some Gentile Greeks had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's the feast being recognized here. We do not know why they came. We're not told. 
But we just know one thing, they're Greeks, they're not Jews, and they wanna talk to Jesus. And Jesus delivers a gospel message to them, which helps us to see the trajectory, the trajectory of God's redemptive plan. He's using the Jews, he's ministering to the Jews, he's blessed the Jews, he's a covenant with the Jews, We have a Jewish Messiah, but the intention is that God would build a nation and a group of disciples that would take that gospel to become a global phenomenon. The Pharisees mockingly acknowledge it or frustratingly acknowledge it, and the very next scene, it's happening. So, I don't know why this is true. Okay, so at this point, I'm just going to tell you, this is a thought I had. I don't know if it's true. Please don't leave the church over it. Please don't start a new denomination because of it. Just a minor point. Why did the Greeks approach Philip and Andrew of all the apostles they could have approached? So this is my thinking. Most of them had Hebrew names. These guys had Greek names. Generally, when you're going to have a spiritual conversation with people that's successful, it's always helpful if there's some, however thin, thread that connects you with your potential audience. You know, when we walk into a room, it's like, oh, oh, you grew up in the same city as I did. There's just a little bit of a connection there. Oh, you, you have the same number of kids that I have. Oh, we're from the same ethnic background. Oh, we went to the same school. Have you noticed that in conversations with people that if there's a, you start to chat, if there's a little bit of, just a little thin connection, there, there's a sense of, oh, okay, let's carry the conversation on. We're, we're looking for just some horizontal, they're not, they're not really all that important, but some horizontal points of connection. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe, the reason why they felt comfortable approaching these two men, even though they were Jews, they were Hellenized Jews, they had Greek names. Maybe there's a sense you know, they can understand us, would be willing to have a conversation with us. And if that's true, I think there's a missiological principle to be mined from the text there. Meaning that build connections with people in the horizontal realm, ask questions, dialogue, make those connections. It often makes a person a lot more comfortable having more meaningful conversations about eternal matters. If I'm not accurate, if this is not the reason why this information is in the text, may the Holy Spirit immediately dismiss it from your memory. Okay? But Jesus answers. He answers them, the text says, which is plural. So he answers them. Now, we don't know if he's, when he says he's answering them, if it's the two questioners, Philip and Andrew, who are going to take the message back to the Greeks, or if the Greeks had actually approached Jesus at this point in time. But regardless, he preaches the gospel. And there's three things in this gospel message that's important. Number one, he points to the imminency of his crucifixion. The crucifixion is central to the gospel. Jesus Christ was sacrificed. His precious blood was spilled for yours and for mine. So when we preach the gospel to the world, it's... It's centered on the crucifixion, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives them a sermon illustration. Don't get all, 
you know, if you're a biological, if you're an expert in seed biology, I'm sure there's many in the room, but if you're an expert in seed biology, don't, don't dismiss the text at this point. Well, the seed doesn't actually die. It goes dormant or whatever happens to a seed. For all intents and purposes, it looks dead, doesn't it? It falls off the plant. It's dry. It's in the ground. You think, I'm never going to see it again. This is the illustration, but until it dies, it can't give life. That's what Jesus is trying to drive toward. Before the seed dies, it's just a living seed on a plant. But when it dies, then after a period of time, it springs to life. So what's the spiritual point? Until we die to self, get off the throne, we cannot live unto Christ. Until you say, uncle, I give up, I surrender, I submit. We call that repentance. I confess my sin. I turn from my wicked ways. You cannot find life in Christ. You cannot find life in Christ. This is the way Jesus puts it. To love your life is to lose it. To hate your life is to gain eternal life. This is not some sort of a, hey, let's all go commit suicide. You're supposed to hate your life. Let's go self-murder. It's not that. It's not a denouncement of the imago dei, which is in each of us. It's a hyperbolic way of saying that you must prioritize Jesus in the most extreme way, above and beyond, in a category all by itself, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to claim to be one of his followers. Because in salvation, what we essentially say is no to self-governance and yes to Christ-governance. We acknowledge that we are at enmity with God. We are rebels without a cause. We are rebellious punks. We are sinners by nature. That is our bent. And until we acknowledge that and confess that and put our faith in Christ, fully in Christ, we cannot claim to be one of his disciples. We cannot trust in ourselves or take merit for our own conversions, not even, not even a quarter of a quarter of a quarter of a quarter of a percentage. We have to trust entirely in Christ's perfection on our behalf. And then the third thing point he makes is that a true disciple serves and follows Christ. We must acknowledge that he is king over our lives. There's um, a bit of a tension here that needs to be acknowledged. I don't think it's a biblical tension. I just think it's a tension in much of the modern church. And that we, we like to drive home those Reformation doctrines we're saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. We're not trusting in ourselves. It's all Christ. It's all Christ. It's not by works lest anyone should boast. And that's true. And then someone says, you know, if you're a true Christian, you need to renounce your sins. If you're a true Christian, you need to follow Christ. You're like, that sounds like a works gospel. I don't have to do anything. I could continue to live in sin and Christ will still let me into his kingdom because I got my ticket out of hell. And that's not accurate because the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit as necessary evidence of a sanctified life, 
Jesus says, we have to follow him. If we're not following him, we're not worthy of him. So the problem is that sometimes we use the word salvation in a very sloppy way. The word salvation is a word that refers to a continuum of events starting back before the creation of the world when God set his sights upon you in his predestination plan. Through election and calling and justification, and conversion, and sanctification and glorification. So it's true that we're only justified in that salvation continuum. We're only justified by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're truly converted, one of the evidences of that is followership. So you can say, I'm converted, but I don't follow Christ, and you're not a Christian. A true convert will follow Christ. Once in a while, they may get off in the weeds a little bit, but they'll get back on track. So a true Christian will follow Christ. They will go where Christ goes. They will acknowledge his lordship. They will acknowledge his lordship over their marriage. So I'm a Christian, but you know, we're, it's kind of a Sunday morning thing for us. No, Christ wants to be Lord of your marriage today and for the rest of the week. He wants to be Lord of your job, your finances, your sexuality. He wants to be Lord of everything. He wants to be king of it all. He's the king of the hill. And in an increasing way, our role as Christians being sanctified is to surrender ourselves to his lordship. This is not front-loading the gospel. This is preaching the consequences and positive results of the gospel. So the true Christian who's justified will be sanctified. I've been hearing that in May, I don't remember the date, but sometime in May, uh, King Charles III will have his public coronation service. I always get it confused. Is it the third or the second? Anybody know? Okay, he's, you guys don't know either. Okay, he's <laughs> King Charles III. So he's going to have his coronation celebration in, in May. And a lot of people are going to tune into that with interest and they're going to watch it. Now, sadly, a little sidebar, I, I heard recently that he is not going to follow in the footsteps of his mother who swore allegiance to uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ within her realm. But rather, he's going to have some sort of a flaky commitment to upholding all the religions of the world and some sort of a misguided attempt to be inclusive. So that's a sad thing. It has significant implications for the Dominion of Canada. But that aside, people are going to tune into that coronation. They're going to watch it. And then when it's over, they're going to turn it off. And they might discuss it with their friends. That was cool. That wasn't cool. That was anticlimactic. That was really awesome, whatever it might be. And they're going to go on their merry way. It's just a show. It's like reality television. It's not going to change your life. The day after the coronation, your life's going to be the same as it was the day before. But this isn't an event like that. This isn't a coronation. This isn't Jesus. Oh, he walked into Jerusalem. That's cool. It's Palm Sunday. Let's go home and have ham sandwiches for lunch and just forget about it till next year. This is a coronation with implications. This is a coronation with consequences. This is a coronation with a calling attached. This is a coronation that's inviting you to submit and to follow. This is the purpose of this coronation. It's an invitation. It's, it's a, a means of exposing our sin. 
and then exposing the righteous benevolence of our king. By the way, Jesus Christ is the only truly benevolent king that's ever walked the face of the planet. Do you honestly think that the rest of the kings of the earth are truly driven by the best interests of their citizens? (laughs) Do you actually believe that? None of them are. This is a truly benevolent king. He didn't have to come. He didn't have to be mocked. He didn't have to wear the crown of thorns. He already has heaven's crown. He didn't have to be stripped naked and embarrassed before us. He could have just wiped us out like that. This is a benevolent king, a good king. And in his coronation, he's calling for you and for me to submit. So simple questions that I'll leave you with. Have you? If not, will you? If you have, do you actually submit to him on a daily basis? In him, there is life and liberty and freedom and joy. It's one of the great ironies of life. When we submit to Christ, life gets better. And when we choose to exercise self-law, it just keeps spiraling downward. So submit yourself to him if you haven't. Find new life and hope and liberty in him. If you say he's your king, act like he's your king. Let's pray to that end. 